Senator, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Um, I have a brief introduction of Senator Toomey. Uh, you don't meet many people on Capitol Hill who are uh, smart, principled, <laughs> principled and nice people. Um, lots of them are nice people. Some are not so nice. Uh, fewer are smart, fewer are principled. And Senator Toomey, as far as I'm concerned, checks all three of those boxes. Um, we, Cato and our scholars and Senator Toomey, we certainly have different points of view on some issues. Uh, but we very much admire the fact that the senator has been, uh, been so principled in defending his perspective on those issues. And uh, also in the, uh, in the economic space, I don't think that there is much daylight between Cato and Senator Toomey. And uh, he's been a really important defender of free markets and free enterprise and in particular free trade. It's harder to find people who will be very vocal on the trade issue these days, so we thank you for that. Uh, I had the pleasure about three weeks ago to have, uh, have lunch with, with uh, Chairman Powell. And uh, it was, it was off, off the record lunch. It was a colleague of mine and, and, and he and a colleague. And uh, I didn't mention to him that I had been in Dallas the week before with Senator Toomey, but he actually brought the senator up. And even though it was off the record, I think I can share this. He basically told me that he misses Senator Toomey because he's one of the few people on the Hill who understood monetary policy. And uh, that made me wonder why he missed him because <laughs> since senator, the senator does understand monetary policy, uh, that means he was often a fierce critic of, uh, of the chairman and, and, and the Fed. But with that, I wanted to get started. And, and uh, I think one of the things that uh, we want to do, uh, a, a, a donor complained to me not that long ago. He said, why do you guys criticize Republicans? Aren't the Democrats so much worse? And I said, well, if I concede that they're worse, on, uh, particularly on economic issues, um, one of the reasons we criticize them is we want them to be better. But also, if you hadn't noticed, the gap is narrowing. And I think that's one of the things that we're going to talk about tonight. Senator Toomey has been, uh, I, I think, also um, very vocal on this issue. But I, I wanted to start, before we got into some of the longer-term trends we've seen over the last couple of years, uh, just asking you about some of the things that have been going, going on now. Um, particularly, you know, we've been running reckless monetary and fiscal policies for a long time, and they seem to get ever more re reckless. Uh, spending is now done in trillion-dollar pieces, and uh, we're starting to see the uh, the impacts of these these uh, reckless policies, uh, sustained high inflation, and then the Fed coming from behind the curve to try to uh, to catch up to inflation, and in the process, uh, creating uh, an environment in which we're now seeing bank failures. And I really just wanted to ask the senator, uh, kind of comment on on that kind of current issue of the day and where you see it headed. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, thanks again for having me. Um, great to be with you again. I enjoyed our conversation um, in Dallas. Look, I, you know, one of the things I've tried to stress about this banking, it's not really a crisis, but it's characterized as that, is that the environment which gave rise to this is entirely a creation of the Fed. And, you know, I think of it in sort of three steps, right? First, together with 
a completely incontinent Congress when it comes to spending and monetizing this spending, the debt that, that would go with it, um, there was just this flood of cash, right? We had a $2 trillion hole in the economy back when people were foolishly shutting down the economy. And we filled it with $6 trillion of spending thereabouts. Um, so you have this huge surge in deposits that unsurprisingly wind up on bank balance sheets. Now all the while, of course, the Fed is maintaining a zero interest rate environment negative real interest rates, zero nominal rates. And so financial institutions, unsurprisingly, decide to move out the risk curve. In the case of SVB, it wasn't a credit risk curve. It was a duration risk curve. But still, they had to find a way to get some kind of yield. And then, when the Fed belatedly discovers the error of their ways, they jack up interest rates, and they crater the value of the bond portfolios that they themselves were responsible for the existence of. So it's like. Every step along the way, it's the mismanagement of monetary policy, and it's, it's just a classic case of uh, the unintended consequences that come from this. Um, the other thing that I think happens uh, along the way here is this whole episode has put a spotlight on, and I think, an intrinsic instability of a fractional reserve banking system. It works fine as long as it works. The fact is, there's no bank that can survive a run. Doesn't matter how well capitalized, how liquid, how well managed. No bank can survive a run. And we have made this problem worse because at the relatively small end of the deposit spectrum, $250,000 and under, deposits are fully guaranteed. No need to be concerned. And if you put your money with a giant bank, well, we designate those as systemically important. Do you think the federal government's going to let one of them fail? Absolutely not. So it's the banks in between and depositors whose deposits are greater than a quarter million dollars who have to ask themselves, why am I the only one in the room taking a risk here? And I think that's a contributing factor to the deposit flight that we've seen. And um, it's, yeah, you know, when government sets up these programs, they always have unintended consequences, which are usually quite negative. Where are we headed, do you think, with, with uh, the, the phenomenon you described is pretty worrisome, that uh, you'll have, you won't have a flight from the smaller banks whose depositors are covered by insurance. You, right. you won't from the, from the larger banks, right. from these, from these, uh, these banks in, in the middle. Um, what's the policy end game for that? Yeah, so, so what I worry about is if we see a significant continuation, maybe an episodic acceleration of this uh, outflow, a lot of which is going into money market accounts, then we're going to see ever more calls to, for the government to fix the problem. Universal guarantee on all deposits. Well, that'll end the run on the bank, right? It'll also introduce terrible moral hazard. It would basically be socializing the banking industry. There would be all kinds of subsequent steps, which would be very, very ugly. So what my theory has always been, and as a finance guy, Peter, you, you know this very, very well, I, I've always thought of the, the person in the capital stack that's most likely to impose managerial discipline on a company is an unsecured creditor, right? The equity investors have upside, so it's not in their interest. Secured depositors, secured creditors um, have much less to worry about. It's the unsecured creditor. 
And if we could find a way to incentivize a layer of capital that is in the category of unsecured credit, or if we had private uh, sources of deposit guarantees, which could be priced based on the risk of the bank, right? I have zero confidence that the supervisors are going to get this right. They never do. Um, but if we had, uh, it could be insurance companies, it could be companies set up for the purpose to provide guarantees of deposits, then you know, that would get very expensive if you weren't doing a good job running your bank. And um, that might impose a kind of discipline that would be helpful. Doesn't matter whether it's financial regulation or healthcare or housing, it seems like uh, policy always follows the path of, I uh, forget what the, uh, the, uh, the fairy tale was of the woman who swallows the fly and then yeah. swallows the spider to eat the fly and then a mouse and then a cat and yeah. keeps going and going. Um, the, uh, here, you know, deposit insurance is the original sin and, and here yeah. we are. Yeah. Do you think that the, uh, you know, one, one of the things that I, 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 I'm concerned about is um, the Fed having the, uh, the fortitude to do what, it, what needs to be done on inflation at a time when we may be seeing more and more of this collateral damage, which will mm -hmm. make it politically more difficult? I'm, I'm less worried about that. And the reason is, I can tell you, I, I really believe that the Fed governors are at some level pretty deeply humiliated by how badly they got this wrong, right? Many of us were telling them, when you grow the money supply by 40% in 18 months, when you maintain zero interest rates, I mean nominal, negative real interest rates, and then you have a multi-trillion dollar unprecedented spending binge, how do you not think that's gonna be inflationary? And I think this goes to a problem with the institution. The group think at the Fed is unbelievable. And there are no monetarists that I can, that I can gather, right, that I can see. It's certainly not at the leadership level. So when you talk about those things, they look at you and say, no, that's all irrelevant. What's important is that inflation expectations are well anchored. To which my response is, so you're telling me inflation is a psychological phenomenon. I think it's a monetary phenomenon. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and that's... Uh, but, but, so they then, remember, they compounded this problem by just sometime, I forget exactly when it was, but it was during the early part of the COVID lockdown, when they decided that the 2% inflation rate that was their target would not be the maximum, it would be the average. And it was important for the world to perceive that as the average, and therefore, since inflation had been running a bit below 2% for a while, it would have to run above 2%. Indeterminate amount for an indeterminate period of time, they never specified that. And we would s have these conversations and say, well, doesn't this create a really big risk that you're gonna get way behind the curve? Because if it starts to take off, you're gonna say, that's okay, still averages out to 2% if we look over the right time frame, right? And, and so, so my point in all this is, they realize they constructed the wrong paradigm, they got caught by it, they, they blew it badly, and they don't want to go down in history as the guys that you know, just let inflation just spin out of control. They don't want to do stop and start. So I honestly think that they're more likely to go too far than not mm -hmm. far enough. Um, 
in, in part because they still don't care very much about like monetary aggregates. Um, they think that we have to crush demand. By the way, you, know, you can have a booming economy with tremendous demand side growth and not have inflation. You, you just need to match the economy with the quantity of money. But you know, that's kind of a monetarist way of thinking. So, Your comments do beg the question again, why Jay Powell misses you. <laughs> I, we, we had a lot of interesting conversations. Um, I was as candid with him as I'm being right now, and uh, I think he appreciated that. Um, you know, the, uh, there was a question about whether he would get a second term, and in my mind, it was a, a question. Um, it was not really. I, I chose not to look at it as a referendum on him, but rather as a choice. And I thought the alternative was much more likely to support even easier monetary policy. Um, so I supported him. Um, so maybe maybe he appreciates that. I want to shift to the uh, the topic I foreshadowed in my introduction, which is. Uh, this idea that I, most of the folks I deal with, they're, they're quite conscious of uh, the radicalization, further radicalization of the left on economic policy. Right. Um, more spending, regulation, redistribution. Um, they're they've paid less attention to some of the shifts that are going on on the right. And uh, you've kind of had a front row seat for some yeah. of that, so maybe you oh, can yeah. tell us about it. Yeah, if, if I just, just a to back up one second to kind of put it in context, um, you know, one uh, sort of version of the recent history of the center-right coalition that, that you may or may not find compelling, but I do, and, and that is post-World War II, there was one great unifying theme that held the center-right coalition together, the Republican Party, conservatives and libertarians, and, and social conservatives and, and free market folks. It was anti-communism, right? The defense hawks saw the Soviet Union as the greatest military threat. Social conservatives found the atheism and, and other policies appalling. And of course, it's the antithesis, the exact anti antithesis of free market and, and economic freedom. So it made sense, right? So this sometimes what might have otherwise been a more fractious coalition held together. And that lasted from the end of World War II till the end of the Cold War. In 1989, when the Berlin Wall went down, you didn't really have to be all that worried about Cuba, right? Uh, the Soviet Union was no more. China was still a third world country. And so we lost that. Now, fortunately, I would argue that Ronald Reagan, during his presidency, which went, led us right up till the end of that Cold War era, introduced a new idea that was a unifying idea for a long time, and that was the idea of limited government. All right? That's not, not as though it's a new idea, but he, uh, I thought, for the first time in a very long time, effectively galvanized the center-right around the idea that it, the problem is the government, stupid. It's just too big. It's the obstacle. It's what's going wrong. And he, was, he really was this very, very persuasive and charismatic champion of the idea of personal freedom and limiting government. And I would argue that that held right up until just a few years ago when it began to get chipped away. 20, uh, 2010 uh, was the year I ran for the Senate. And you may remember that it was the year of the Tea Party. 
The Tea Party was a restoration movement. The Tea Party folks didn't introduce any radical new ideas. They were just tired of Republicans who weren't delivering on the promise of limited government and lower taxes and less spending and everything that goes with it. Um, so that was not uh, a departure. It was a restoration uh, effort. And I think it was, it's only in, in very recent years. And, and so here's what worries me a, a lot. It's the first time in my adult lifetime that the central, what has been the central tenant, the, the glue that has held together this coalition, the idea of limited government and economic freedom and market economies, that very idea is under attack. In 2010, there were Republicans that claimed to support those ideas, but they didn't really when, it, when push came to shove. Now, there's Republicans who openly criticize those ideas. They ridicule and they mock those of us who are fervent believers in market economies, and they're advocating something altogether different. They're not the majority, I don't think, but they are in elective office. They are sitting in the United States Senate, Republicans. They're sitting in the House, and they are trying to grow this movement. This movement, I, I think of them as the, uh, uh, the nativist populists, um, and they are allies with Democrats on many issues. And I could go through a list that probably be a little chilling, where if we had a vote on the Senate floor, I'm not sure how it would turn out because some of these folks have become hostile to economic freedom. And uh, trade is exhibit A in this, right? Trade was always, there was always some rumbling about trade because let's face it, free trade can be disruptive. In many ways, I think of it as analogous to technology, right? When word processors were invented, I'm pretty sure that was devastating for the typewriter business. Um, well, in a sort of similar way, if you have a free trade agreement with a foreign company, that, a country that has a particular competitive advantage, it could displace uh, American businesses. And the problem is the displacement is very visible and acute, and the benefit, which is consumers having a wider range of choices and saving money that is available to elevate their standard of living and the competition that it fosters that improves everybody's game. All of those things are diffuse. And that makes it a challenging matter to win on. And some of these folks in this, what I call this nativist populist wing, they want to just demagogue it, right? They'll, they'll, they'll go into communities and say, look, the, the reason you don't have the job you'd like is because stupid people in Washington negotiated stupid trade agreements and gave away your industry. So let's take it back. And so that plays out in various other issue areas, trade being maybe the most, uh, most obvious. But it's gaining a traction now that I've never seen before. And that's what worries me. I think one of the things we have to do is is really push back on the idea that trade is uh, that we that we somehow got something wrong on trade because uh, if we got anything wrong, it's that there wasn't enough appreciation for the fact that under a free tr freer trade regime, the country will be better off, right. but there will be people who will be worse off, and I think there wasn't enough focus on that. But I think from this perspective, when you get into that, people say, "Oh, well, we have to help them." Like job right. training or things right. like that, which are things we know will never work, right. that the government's never going to deliver. And I think that there has not been enough focus on 
all the mis policy mistakes that make adjustment from trade dislocations happen. So workers who are pushed into home ownership and end up owning an underwater home, can't, right. can't move, mm -hmm. uh, they can't retool their career because of occupational licensing. Right. Yeah. Uh, you, is that, how, how, what do you think we got wrong, if anything? Well, look, you know, if, you know, a certain senator wrote a popular book, it's a great book, a very entertaining book, um, uh, about um, this sort of this dysfunction and this malaise that has settled on this category of Americans, uh, you know, the, the examples he gave her from Appalachia, you know, the 27-year-old guy who's living in the basement of his parents' home, and he's got a prescription for oxycotton or something, and that's where he spends his time. Um, you can tell him the reason he's there is because of trade with China, or you could point out that it's the government's Social Security Disability Program that sends him the check, and it's Medicaid that he now qualifies for that gives him the prescription, and it is the welfare state that has contributed enormously. And then, as you point out, these impediments to job growth and business growth and mobility itself, yes. uh, all of which are really important in a, a dynamic economy. We're, we're, we've talked about trade a bit. What are some of the other issues where there's, there's not much daylight anymore between the parties, or, or, or at least part of the part of the right, between part of the so right between and the left. this group. So, um, yeah. And by the way, on trade, you know, uh, I mean, it was USMCA which was designed to restrict trade with Mexico. Don't don't let's not pretend that was a free trade agreement. Um, the abuse of Section 232, which is supposed to be there for sort of imminent national security risks. Donald Trump used that to impose tariffs on steel and aluminum from Mexico and Canada, seriously. Um, there's industrial policy, right? I mean, how many Republicans voted for a bill to give $50 billion to the chip industry? This is a gazillion dollar industry that's been around for decades. And we decided that we're so worried about Chinese competition that we're going to we're going to copy the Chinese, who, by the way, have been failing for decades at developing an indigenous, uh, sophisticated chip industry. They've been pouring billions of dollars at it, failing. Um, we're, going to, we're going to replicate that. Um, there's, there's things like the market ability to move capital, stock buybacks. Joe Biden's got a great idea. Let's, rate, let's quintuple the tax when a business decides it can't profitably deploy all of its cash and it's going to return some of it to the people who own the company, let's punish them for that. And if you had a vote on the Senate floor on that very measure, there would be multiple Republicans would be voting for it. I don't know if it would pass. And we don't have to worry about it at the moment because the House wouldn't move it. But that's an example. Um, you have the administrative state itself. I've got a, a, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal with Phil Graham runs tomorrow, as it happens. And we go through the litany of ways in which uh, Joe Biden's administration has just put out-of-control regulators on steroids across all the different agencies. The regulatory avalanche is really actually quite, quite damaging, quite problematic, <coughs> totally undemocratic, right? These, I take one case in point, right? The financial regulators are together in concert, systematically 
trying to kill the crypto industry by denying banking services. They've made it clear to the banks they regulate that we don't want you, I'm, I'm not talking about like taking custody of Bitcoin, I'm talking about doing the payroll account for a developer who's trying to develop a new application. Um, so Republicans historically have always been apoplectic about the idea of the growth of the administrative state for a lot of good reasons. Now we have this nativist populace who are thinking, wait a minute, you know, I don't like the growth of the administrative state if the other guys are controlling it, but if we get to control it, maybe it's not such a bad idea. Seriously. I think that's an actual quote from J.D. That's, Vance. That's, it's pretty close, right? <laughs> yeah. So this is, this is terrible. And this is what I think we need to engage in. I mean, this is like, this is the soul of the entire color. You put it well uh, when you said, we've always understood that there's a center-left coalition that is not interested, like economic freedom is not a priority. But if it's not a priority for the center-right coalition, then where the hell are we? You're starting to look like Europe, where you don't have a party standing up for, for limited government. That's what we cannot have. The, uh, unlike Claude Rains, who was shocked at gambling going on in Rick's, uh, you know, I'm not shocked when politicians try to win elections, but it seems to me that the, uh, some of the movement away from free markets has been an overreaction to the 2016 election, where you know, this narrative that you know, Trump pulled working class voters from Democrats in you know, the Midwest, and so there tr became a tremendous focus on, well, we have to deliver goodies to working class people, and that's the way. So ver ver the very ambitious people, Josh, Josh Hawley, Marco Rubio, J.D. Vance. Um, but it's become pretty clear, particularly in the 2022 midterms, that this is not, it's not been a winning strategy. But yet it doesn't look like it's close to being jettisoned. How do you read that? So, so my take on this is this is still very much an open question, probably um, geographically specific. It'll be individual congressional districts. Um, I, I think we're going to see primaries where we're going to have what I would consider sort of conventional free market limited government Republicans and the nativist populists. And it's really important that the right people win those primaries. But I don't think it's foregone uh, conclusion at all. Um, you're right, their record wasn't a great one, but it's, it's hard to separate some of the other factors going on, right? I mean, we had, uh, we had a, a raft of incompetent candidates, that's a problem. <laughs> um, and we had uh, a lot of candidates who were um, uh, too close to Trump and trying to portray themselves as, you know, ultra pro-Trumpsters. Um, that created a liability of itself. But let me get just one quick point. Um, the migration of especially white working class males to the Republican Party that used, the, this group used to be overwhelmingly Democrat, this has been going on for a long time. When I ran for the Senate in 2010, we knew we were going to do very well in places like suburban Pittsburgh in the rural parts of southwestern Pennsylvania because that demographic, which used to be massively Democrat, was increasingly coming our way. We were right. We did better than anyone had done before. 
And then in 2012, our candidates did better still, and it continued. Now, in 2016, it's true that Donald Trump gave that trend a boost, an accelerant. And he did even better than what the trend was heading towards. But um, you, you don't have to like promise free money and no job um, to get the support of, of these folks. In fact, I think you know, a message that includes limited government and some personal responsibility actually resonates. If, uh, if Donald Trump's the nominee in 2024, that probably prevents some of this adjustment from happening that needs to be happening, right? Because it would be hard to see a lot of candidates moving away from the issues that he really galvanizes uh, his, his base around, trade, immigration. Yeah, if he's the nominee, I think you're absolutely correct, and that might be the least of our worries. Mm. I, I, I think we've got very serious problems if he's the nominee. Well, as they say, there's a, there's a lot of time left, but uh, if yeah. it's uh, Trump and Biden again, you know, shoot me. <laughs> um, of course, I said that to Cynthia in uh, 2015 when it looked like Jeb Bush was coming on strong or maybe it was late 2014, I said, if this is another Bush versus Clinton, just shoot me. <laughs> and then 18 months later, what I wouldn't have given well, for yeah, old Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, I, you know, something I don't, I don't get a lot of people to agree with me on, but I'm, I'm curious what you think. I, I think a lot of what we're talking about is, is been driven by, um, you know, we've been a long growth recession. Yeah. Um, I look back to, to the, uh, you know, if you go all the way back to the Depression, we've never gone more than three years without having per capita GDP growth of at least 3% in a, in a year. And we've now gone, except for the COVID rebound, 15 years. Um, and I think that this ends up manifesting itself in, you know, just uh, scapegoating on the wrong issues. Yep. That, you know, people are, you, you can't underestimate what impact that has on, on ordinary people's lives. And it's therefore easy to believe someone who's saying that, you know, China is making, you know, taking your job away yeah. or, or someone from Mexico or is coming immigrants. in, et, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. Uh, how much do you think this is really? Um... It's a big part of it. It's a big part of it. And it's both the fact that growth decelerated, but also, and, and this part is a little bit unavoidable, but growth is always going to be uneven, right? There's going to be some places that are going to grow faster than other places. That is a natural fact. But if the total growth rate is low, then obviously it stands to reason that those underperforming even a weak growth rate are really doing badly. And then, yes, they are susceptible to hearing the story about whoever the popular scapegoat of, of the day is. Um, so I, I do think that's a big part. So my, I've long been completely convinced that strong growth doesn't by itself solve all problems, but it makes all problems easier to solve. And it does solve an awful lot of problems for a lot of people. Right now, by the way, you know, we've got this very unusual situation where we've got like a record low unemployment rate. We've got a really tight labor market, a little bit loosening lately, but a tight market. And pretty rapidly accelerating wages, but they still haven't caught up with inflation. And so the average worker is, you know, has a lower standard of living today than he did a year ago, six months ago, 18 months ago, because his wages are not keeping up. 
Um, we've got to restore the kind of robust growth and stable prices in that environment. Uh, you know, the tide's rising and the vast majority of ships are rising with it. I had a hopeful moment on growth last summer when we had a panel at one of our teacher conferences and there was a, 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 a progressive a libertarian and a conservative on the panel and our David Bowes was representing the libertarians and they asked David what he felt one of the biggest problems in the country was and he said, you know, slow growth, that we need, to, we need policies that will, uh, you know, will we'll get government out of the way and let the economy grow and the fellow on the panel from Brookings said, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, so that was a hopeful moment. And he went on to say, and that's why we need to pass the CHIPS Act, yeah, which, yeah, you know, yeah. said, okay, this is gonna be a longer term project than we thought. Yeah. Um, do you wanna open it for sure, questions? Sure, sure. Why don't we, uh, I, I can never stand it when, you know, we say let's open up for questions and there's time for one or two questions. So let's do it now while we can, uh, can have some time for several questions. And I think we have a microphone, um, two microphones. Sir. Hey, I have two questions. Um, the first one is, can you become a senator again? <laughs> um, uh, no. That's easy. No. Tim thinks so also for president if you want to run for that. Um, but the next question I have is actually related to trade. So, you know, I've done a lot of research in, you know, the tech companies being banned in China, Facebook, Google, movies. So just for a comparison, you know, in the media world, Avengers Endgame made $600 million in China. But, you know, they started banning movies, and Spider-Man No Way Home, if it was allowed, um, would have been able to make probably about $400 million. So that's not coming back to the U.S. Do you think trade deals need to start negotiating media brands, such as movies, games, and also websites like Facebook, where it could bring in $20 billion plus to the United States if they were allowed? Uh, so... So you're basically saying uh, allow for reciprocity in terms of media content? Yes, start including that into the trade so, deals. So, you know, my, my view is uh, reciprocity in the form of eliminating all barriers is all good. The more we can get, the better. However, it's um, not a good idea for us to put up a barrier because someone else has a barrier. We still win, even if we don't have the full reciprocity. Um, this is something I argued with Donald Trump uh, repeated. I can't tell you how many times we had that argument. In his mind, if you have a trade deficit with someone else, and he would assume that it was caused by a lack of reciprocity in the rules, if you have a trade deficit, the amount of the deficit is the measure of how much they're stealing from you. And I tried to explain to him, I'm pretty sure I have a trade deficit with my grocer. I'm pretty sure it's going to be permanent for the rest of my life. <laughs> And I'm pretty sure he's never stolen from me. But yeah. anyway. Thank you. And I'm sure arguing with Donald Trump is the most fun moment of your career. <laughs> <laughs> Sir, in the middle here, wait for the mic. Um, you've talked about how important growth is. I totally agree. And the CBO seems to say that we're not going to have more than 2% growth indefinitely in the future. We haven't talked about exactly why, and from my perspective, these government regulations, the fact that climate change is making us pay twice as much for energy and getting no more for it, things like that are going to virtually make it impossible to have growth. How do you see us getting the message out and getting people to understand that? Well, so I, I, 
there's two elements to this. Um, I, I think the Biden administration, as I mentioned earlier, I think the audacity of the regulators is breathtaking. The extent to which, so I, I, I kind of feel like throughout most of recent history, most regulators, most administration officials didn't really want to be overturned by the courts, right? If, if that, that was kind of a rebuke, right? That was a clear sort of third party independent assessment that you exceeded your legitimate authorities. And, you know, I think most regulators on both sides of the aisle, you know, they had a sense of professionalism, a sense of pride. They didn't want to see that happen. I think that's gone with this bunch. They, in fact, they, they probably believe that they're not aggressive enough unless they're getting overturned by the courts. That's how hard they're trying to push the envelope at the FTC, all the financial regulators, the energy space. And the good news is I think the court's going to help a lot. There are a lot of circuit courts. The Supreme Court, I think, is taking a much more strict view about what regulators can and can't do. Chevron deference is, is, is lost a lot of its standing. I don't know if it even survives. So, so that's one thing, right? I think there is a chance um, to push back. By the way, if we take both houses of Congress in the next Congress, if we, if we, if we win everything, we can repeal a lot of this stuff. And you have a, uh, a device that can allow you to do that with a simple majority vote in the Senate, because I'm under no illusion that Republicans will have 60 votes. But ultimately, I, I do want to stress, you know, politics is downstream from culture. The political class follows where it thinks the popular sentiment is, or at least a majority in their district. So we've got to win this argument um, across the country with, uh, you know, ordinary voters. Um, to convince them that, that growth is good for them, um, that our policies work. And I, I, think, it's, I think it's totally doable. We, we can't lose sight of that. I mean, one of the things we do to really energize ourselves at Cato is to understand that, you know, within each of these threats that we face, there's also an opportunity. And I, I think one of the things that's implicit in your question is I, I grew up during the 70s. It was pretty terrible. And uh, you know, we wouldn't have had the 80s or 90s without the 70s. I think it's really clear to a lot of people that we're on the wrong track and that the things we're doing are not working. Um, and that doesn't mean we're about to you know, have mourning in America again, but it does mean that uh, you can get a hearing from people who didn't ne necessarily pay a lot of attention to these things before because it's, it is very obvious that we're doing, making, a, making a lot of mistakes. Mm -hmm. Sir. Hi, I'm a, I'm a CFO, and so, you know, when you are in a physical deficit or, or experiencing financial distress, you look at assets, particularly to unload. And we talked about Margaret Thatcher earlier, and one of her big things was privatizing certain assets. So you're curious about, you know, assets of the federal government, uh, you know, post office, Amtrak, TVA. In general, you know, is there any potential sometime in the future to privatize some of those assets? Uh, I've got to tell you, we're a long way from it. Um, you know, I mean, Amtrak would be a great candidate. Uh, it's just unbelievable. But if you look at the dynamic, it's very clever, right? <clears throat> you have Amtrak makes money on the Northeast Corridor, and that subsidizes the entire rest of the network. And you have a huge majority of senators, for instance, who have a train that runs through their state. 
it may be empty most days, but it's available and they can claim to keep that train running. So, you know, the obvious, um, the obvious thing to do would be to cut this up and auction it off and it would, you know, it, but, but then there would be some lines would get shut down, right? Like the ones for which there's no demand. And that's why it's very, very hard to do that politically. Sir, in the middle here, close to the stage. Right. Right over here. Hi, um, great conversation. Um, so, like, in your opinion, on, on like an international perspective, um, what um, do you think that countries can do um, to encourage more free trade around the world? Because I know that you guys talked about trade a little bit, so in terms of that perspective. So I, I haven't thought a lot about it from the point of view of what can other countries do, but I really think there's no substitute for American leadership. I mean, we're the biggest economy in the world by far. Everybody wants access to our market because it is so big, and that is enormously powerful leverage. Even though we have very low tariffs, it's worth a lot to get that to zero. I mean, we have low tariffs if you don't have a free trade agreement. And so... We've got opportunities just sitting there. I mean, we could have a UK free trade agreement. We could have a South Korea free trade. We could have a Kenya free trade agreement. We could do those very quickly. A lot of the work's already been done. But we have an administration. The Biden administration is just an extension of the Trump administration on trade policy. This is the first administration I can think of that, so far, what are we in the third year here? There is no free trade agreement under discussion anywhere in the world. The United States is not involved in any negotiations for free trade agreement with any country in the world. And Biden hasn't lifted any of the Trump tariffs. None of them. So it's, it, it's just very hard for other countries. Now, they do it among themselves, right? We're, we're, seeing, we're seeing some, and that's going to that's gonna leave us you know, left out and, and behind if we don't uh, resume our natural role, in my view, as the proponents of free trade and, and uh, the, the biggest advocates. That takes presidential leadership. We actually have a free trade agreement ready to go with the UK, because yeah. a few years ago, yeah. we uh, undertook an exercise at Cato. Uh, we basically gathered about a dozen other organizations in the UK and here, and we basically had drafting sessions. We basically come up with, came up with uh, you know, the kind of ideal US-UK free trade agreement, which is what we called it, and there's a publication. You can actually see it and read it. And uh, Kemi Badenak, who's a rising star in the Tory party, was really one of the um, candidates who came out of nowhere during the, uh, during the prime minister uh, race last summer. Uh, she basically got the portfolio, the trade portfolio in the new government, and we had her at Cato, her first trip to the U.S. Uh, the first think tank she visited was Cato, just to try to put that in her hands. But as you say, it's, uh, it, it, it is very similar to, uh, to the reception that we had under the Trump administration as well. Um, we actually, I'll, I'll put a plug in, we just had our first protectionist madness tournament at Cato. It was, uh, I mentioned we're trying to come up with new ways to market our ideas. Scott Lincecum, who uh, among other things runs our trade effort, basically came up with the idea of shining a light on the worst trade policies. And so he devised what was called protectionist madness. It was a bracket 
of the 32 worst protectionist policies that he called the thoughtless 32. He put them in a bracket, and basically while the NCAA tournament was going on, we had a tournament of our own. We had thousands of people voting online, and we had four brackets. We had the uh, Henry Clay bracket, the Smoot-Hawley bracket, yeah. the McKinley bracket, and the Trump-Biden bracket. <laughs> and uh, yeah, basically, there was, we just, it was a single elimination tournament. People went online over a couple of days, they would vote, and we basically had an elimination tournament until the Jones Act yeah. uh, won. It was, a, the, 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 uh, it was the uh, Thoughtless 32, the Sour 16, the Egregious 8, and the Foul 4. And the Foul... <laughs> And the uh, ended up uh, the Jones Act in the final beat the uh, beat uh, by America. So yeah. over here, ma'am. Thank you. Um, I'm curious because we haven't talked about defense much uh, about your views on Taiwan and the United States uh, involvement potentially in defending Taiwan as an independent democratic country. Yeah. So here's where I part ways with uh, a lot of the Cato folks. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I, think, I, I think the world is becoming an increasingly dangerous place. I think Xi and Putin are very determined to make the world safe for brutal dictatorships and oppressive regimes. That is, that, that is underway. Um, I, I don't want to ever have to have us in a position where we have to make a decision about sending troops, but I think the way to do that is arm the hell out of Taiwan, give them the resources, let them be a porcupine so that the Chinese would say, this, there's just no way we want to try to commit to an invasion. The more challenging thing would be to be able to enable the Taiwanese to prevent a blockade. I think that's, that's the real vulnerability of Taiwan, and that's why China's uh, putting massive resources in develop, developing a modern, powerful blue water navy, which they never had before, but increasingly they do now. But I, I think it's important that we support um, allied democratic market economy type countries because if we don't, I, I worry that the world will spiral down to a series of uh, regional hegemons who will have their own aspirations to be, go beyond just their region, and China would be one of them. And neighboring countries will have to cut whatever deal they can because they can't, they can't fight the great you know, regional power by themselves. So. I think you know the best uh, best way to uh, avoid a war is to make sure Taiwan is in a position that um, China decides it's just not worth it. We wouldn't have a we wouldn't have a serious disagreement yet. I don't think. Um, you know, I, I think that we, I, we would certainly agree with uh, the idea of Taiwan uh, arm, arming itself. One of the problems is that. Um, you know, we need to put more pressure on the Taiwanese to buy the right kinds of weapons. Because um, what happens is, and here I'm relying on our experts. I'm, this, I'm out of my area of expertise. But um, one, of, one of my colleagues says that there's a reason that they've never made a movie called Top Mine. Because uh, it's not very interesting. So those aren't the kinds of weapons they want. You know, they want fighter jets. And those aren't necessarily the things that are going to turn them into a porcupine. So I think there needs to be a lot of focus on that. Um, my hope would be that, that China would, would, uh, would not invade Taiwan. Where we might part company, well, I, I won't even, I, we don't even have to go that far. I, I've been amazed 
in my travels around the country and the groups that I've spoken to, how many people are okay with there being a war with China over Taiwan, which I just think would be a catastrophe. For China to invade Taiwan, take over Taiwan, would be a tragi tragedy. Um, but I think that a war, I think avoiding war with China will be one of the foreign policy projects of our time. And it'll be one in which I think Cato's gonna play an important role. Because I think that uh, any way you look at it, a war, full-on war with China would just be a, be a complete disaster. And I'm amazed how many discussions I'm in where I can't convince someone of that. Um, and I think I, I, I worry about that a lot. Um, actually, let me see. I don't want to miss anyone in the back because I feel like we haven't been fair to uh, Sir in the middle. And then, sir, in the blue shirt, and I think we're probably out of time after that, right? Yeah. So two more questions. Thank you. Uh, if you could, if you had a magic wand and you could wave it, what would be the best policy to in reinvigorate long-term growth in the U.S., do you think? Um, so the, one of the simplest, one of the most elegant solutions to that uh, question, I think, is adoption of the RAINS Act. Are you familiar with the RAINS Act? It's an acronym, I forget exactly what it stands for, but the idea of it is before any federal regulation can go into effect, if it affects more than $100 million worth of commerce, it must have the affirmative vote of both houses of Congress. That would be a complete game changer. Right now, it, it's not legislation isn't what's killing the economy. It's the it's the avalanche of regulation. This would change that completely. And every regulation would have to have, a, have the support of a majority of congressmen who'd know they'd have to go back and defend it in their district. Right now, there's no accountability. Nobody has to take the blame for out-of-control regulators. They just point their finger at the agency. I think that one act would dramatically curtail the excessive regulation of our economy. If you gave me the magic wand, I'm not sure I'd use it for growth. I just, I would want to reform entitlements because to me that's the existential threat. Um, but, but uh, so I'd maybe take the wand and cheat. <laughs> Last question, sir, in the blue shirt. Hi, uh, Peter, if I understood you correctly, you were saying at least on economic issues, we would tend to lean Republican. And I've seen statistics that Republican administrations can actually be even worse than the Democrats on fiscal policy. So I, I don't see why we lean Republican any more than Democrat. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily submit that we lean Rep Republican. What I was saying, and, and it's interesting when we have these conversations, the, you know, the senator talks about us or our side sometimes because he is, uh, he, he's played on a political team. We don't. What I said was a lot of our donors who support Republicans haven't noticed the shift that's taking place in the, in the conservative, uh, conservative coalition. And I agree with you. When I criticize Republicans, one of the reasons is that we've had um, you know, unbelievable spending under unified Republican government. So uh, in fact, I was at a conference last summer where uh, Senator Toon st st stood up and was talking about the um, 
you know, the out of control spending by the Democrats. And I think thought it was amazing when he stood up and said that because I didn't think he, you know, he and his, his, uh, his caucus had a lot of, uh, a lot of credibility on, on the issue. Okay, I got to push back a little bit here. Okay. <laughs> All right, look, there's, there's plenty of blame. There's plenty of examples of Republicans and administrations that absolutely engaged in all kinds of spending. Uh, it's a long list. I'm the first to concede. But I think it's important to remember the animating purpose of the Democratic Party is to expand the role of government. It is to grow it in all directions, with the exception of security, and to increase every problem. I, I go through this for a thought exercise. I defy anybody in this room to come up with a single welfare program anywhere in the federal government. There's hundreds and hundreds of them that would get a single Democratic senator mm -hmm. to vote to mm -hmm. cut one dime from any one of them. It doesn't happen. Let me give you a, a, a case in point. How far back in American history do you think you have to go to get to that year when uh, food stamp spending was half what it was in 2022? The answer is 2019. It was doubled. The hearing on the Hill this week, no, last week, last week, today's Monday, last week, was kicked off by a Democrat who said any discussion about cutting one dime from our nutrition programs is going to find out it ain't happening on my watch. And that's what it is. It doesn't, it can double. You could triple it. You could add a zero to the end. And the next day, they would want more money. So that's the, that's the nature of the Democratic uh, motivation, and Republicans are at least resistant to that. Right? There's, you know, I have to give a lot of credit to the guys that gave um, Kevin McCarthy all of his headaches as he was seeking confirmation as Speaker. If you look carefully at what they were demanding, it was mostly fiscal reforms. They were demanding that we cut spending, that we slow the rate of growth of spending. It was actually largely about spending, and one of the most encouraging things was Donald Trump was on the phone telling them, knock it off, just vote for Kevin. And they were saying, no, we want some concessions here because this is important to us. I thought that was actually a very encouraging moment when that wing of the Republican Party was that focus on getting some kind of spending discipline uh, built into the program. So anyway, that's, that's my defense of my party. We, uh, well, it gets back to what my introduction. We criticize them because we want them to be better. Uh, we criticize Democrats on civil liberties. Most, neither party lives up to, uh, they, they, they talk the talk, they don't walk the walk, and part of the role of Cato is to try to get both sides on the areas we agree with to get them to walk the walk a little bit better. Yeah. But uh, thank you all for being here. Senator, thanks so much. Thank Real you. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Real pleasure.